You're listening to Thinking Biblically. This is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. Uh, Welcome back to Thinking Biblically, which is uh, a podcast dedicated to exploring how all scripture relates to all of life. We have another special guest this week. As we return to the topic that I was talking about a couple of weeks ago, dealing with how to relate to government, uh, don't forget to leave comments below, or, or you can send emails, email to me at uh, comments at thinkingbiblically.org. Uh, don't forget as well to subscribe and, and hit that notification bell so that you will be notified whenever a new uh, podcast is available. And so now it's my pleasure to introduce the Reverend Dr. Joe Boot. Joe is a cultural theologian, Christian apologist, and founding pastor of Westminster Chapel in Toronto. He's also the founder of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Currently living in Canada, he's originally from Great Britain. Joe has spoken all over the world at numerous universities, seminaries, churches, and conferences. His books include Searching for Truth, Why I Still Believe, and How Then Shall We Answer. He's also the author of the extensive systematic work of cultural theology slash philosophy entitled The Mission of God. And just before we went on, Joe wanted me to let you know that he's just released another book. It's it's called For Politics, The Christian, The Church, and The State, which fits into exactly what we're going to be talking about uh, today. And his books are available on Amazon and at the Ezra Institute, which um, let Joe explain that a little more as we go along at some point. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having me, Alan. It's great to see you. So, Joe... Um, how long have you lived in Canada now? Uh, I've been in Canada for 18 years. Um, so th- th- I think it was 2003, yeah. Yeah, so you've spent much of your life in both places, right? That's correct. Yeah, so if you were to say what is the biggest difference between Canada and Great Britain, what would you say? Oh, wow. Um, well, beyond the sort of obvious things uh, um, that we might observe about the, the physical landscape or the, uh, the, um, the architecture and the age of the towns and so forth. The driving. Uh, the, 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 the driving. <laughs> um, and of course, weather. So there are a number of obvious differences, but I would say that um, perhaps one of the most significant differences, especially as it relates to some of the, the things that um, we're talking about today um, would be a sense of connectedness historically. Um, when you're living in the United Kingdom, um, whether you you know fully pause to think about it or appreciate it or not, you're surrounded constantly by hundreds and hundreds of years of history um, and inherited uh, tradition. And I would say that uh, the in the Canadian landscape, um, uh, we've come to see ourselves more in terms of being uh, not American, no longer British and progressive. And so I would say sort of in terms of the sort of popular consciousness, you know, on the one hand in Britain, you've just had Brexit, which is really all about, you know, a sense of British independence and identity that you know, has deep historical roots um, over against the fact that we've just re-elected Justin Trudeau, promising to be the most, you know, progressive prime minister the world has ever seen. So that, that, I would say that so this sort of um, historical, cultural, 
um, consciousness um, may be the one of the big differences. So what what difference do you think that actually makes to this, like the psyche of a people, apart from maybe your own personal preferences, as you observe life in these two places and seeing what is going on in the world today, um, what how does that affect people's lives on a day by day basis if it, if it does at all? Yeah, I mean, what I wouldn't want to do is paint a picture of um, uh, of all Brits as somehow sort of um, deeply historically reflective and uh, and 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 profoundly conscious of their inherited liberties and and uh, and uh, you know the, the the Christian character of the Constitution. Um, that would not be true, uh, you know. In uh, that's not the popular word on the street, if you know what I mean. Um, but in general, because our cultural historical situation provides the kind of plausibility structure within which we live every day. Uh, the, the the difference that it makes, I think, is that as I've lived in Canada these 18 years, um, Canada t- seems to be, it tends to be a nation still looking for an identity. Um, you know, with the, the, the sort of shaking off of the British North America Act with the introduction of the Canadian Charter in was it 1982, I think? Um, and so the sense of uh, of cutting those historical ties in some way there under Trudeau Senior, um, and then this sense of, I mean, you know, who are we? If you think about the 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 issue now, the, the the sort of radically politically charged issue of indigenous people, and you know, you go. You go somewhere now to the theatre, or you, or, or you're, or you're heading out. Well, when you could go to the theatre without being double jabbed, um, or you're going to a restaurant or something, and people feel obligated to start talking about, you know, which indigenous tribes' land they're on. There's this sense of a lack of identity, a lack of rootedness, um, that I do think it affects people. Um, uh, this sort of struggle for a sense of what is a Canadian, um, who, who are we, what is it that defines us, um, and uh, the struggle to define ourselves not just in terms of what we're not, but who we actually are. And I think that means that sometimes when it comes to cultural challenges, that historical sort of disconnectedness and sense of um, cultural insecurity around our identity means that we're known for being nice, but not necessarily for taking a stand, at least in the in the, in the the more recent iteration of what Canada is. I mean, obviously World War II prior to 82, but in these last 40 or 50 years or so, um, this sense of not really having an understanding of who we are. Um, I think it was uh, John Adams um, Jr. Uh, John Quincy Adams, who said uh, that uh, who who we are is who we were. And um, I think that is a real disconnect. And so, and especially now in the younger generation, which is even more historically illiterate, this sense of um, what it is that that makes us uh, a Canadian and a Canadian distinctive means that we, we tend to be um, nice, but... Uh, but rather weak on identifying and, and on then being able to resist things that are counter um, our historical inheritance. Yeah, concerning the the Canadians is nice thing. I was talking to uh, somebody who's come to Canada 
to work for the United States, never been to Canada before. And uh, I was explaining about this, this nice thing, but I always like to counterbalance that with the fact our most popular sport, hockey, is one of the most brutal sports on the planet and especially when it comes to dropping the the hockey gloves and going at it with bare fists so yeah. i tend to think that the canadian niceness is a bit of passive aggressiveness actually um but going back to the uh the lack of identity and and i as much as i understand what you're saying i i, I agree with you would you say therefore that canadians are more uh, susceptible to the whatever is the latest thing than than the british are and even the americans as an as an as a generalization i would say yes and um i i think it's true of the australians as well interestingly enough who have a kind of similar sort of history um and and sort of similar challenges and, and 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 problems um there's uh there's a sense in which the americans uh, still like to think of themselves and define themselves in terms of a struggle for freedom, of independence, and therefore of a constitution that, that grants them um, rights and, and uh, responsibilities and limits government. Um, and of course, things like the Second Amendment, um, which puts, uh, seeks to put a radical limit on government. Whereas I think, um, and, and of course, in the United Kingdom, uh, this because of the sort of deep history it's sort of inescapable and it's tied up within our constitutional arrangements uh, even though there's been efforts to radically remake those by the left in in uh, recent decades um there is uh, there's still a sense that um uh we are defined by that historical inheritance and that it means something and i think you know the brexit vote was very indicative of that totally shocked the the left and the media they couldn't believe it and they were insulting average everyday brits for being you know um uh, xenophobic and goodness knows what other other insults they were throwing but they didn't really understand what was happening what what was going on really there was people wondering what bit concerned with what they feel they were losing within their society whereas i think um, in Canada, uh, we this this lack of that clear identity means that we've come to really define ourselves in terms of how progressive we are. We've tended to follow Nordic, um, uh, Scandinavian uh, models and examples, and uh, we sort of think our role in the world is to show how inclusive, diverse, and progressive we are. And I mean that was part of um, the Liberal government's uh, election campaign this time around. You know, we need. Trudeau's pitches. We need. Uh, we need to continue on this progressive journey. And Canada is a social experiment, and of course, the problem with an experiment is that in order for an experiment to be valid, um, uh, if this is a social experiment, um, the first condition of a valid experiment is the controlled conditions, and so therefore we're susceptible to this sort of burgeoning, massive role for the state uh, that certainly Americans and now to a lesser degree, but certainly to a greater degree than Canada, Brits would see as a state overreach. And we've seen that in the last 18 months, of course. Yeah, I remember when uh, uh, Justin Trudeau was first elected, he made the statement that, that Canada was the f- uh, first post-national country 
whatever that means. And there's this idea that we're for everybody and open and all the rest until people call us Americans. Right. And we, again, draw the line. A lot of people don't realize that, as you said right at the beginning, that our identity is in not being American. And that's actually a key reason why we have Canada at all is because of the fear of being taken over by by the U.S. back in the 1800s. Yeah. Now, I, the other question I was going to ask you before we got into some of the, the, the key things I, I want to discuss with you, I we may have already answered by example, maybe not, but I was going to ask you to explain to everyone what a cultural theologian is, because that's what you say you are, and um, I don't think I've ever heard anybody else call themselves that. Sure. Um, just uh, as, a, as a side point, um, you know, when we say that it's often been said that to being everything to all people is is akin to being nothing to nobody, and that's the that's the danger. So a cultural um, uh, theology, or, or sometimes I talk about cultural philosophy, um, the, the, the terminology doesn't matter too much, um, is simply uh, a, a focus, or we might say within theology, it would be a sort of, uh, might, we might say a subdivision within theology um, to talk about the application of the word of God to the various aspects of cultural life. So um, some aspects of theology have a peculiar focus on systematics, others on biblical theology, uh, pastoral theology, and so on, these sort of subdivisions. Cultural theology is concerned with reflecting on culture as it relates to um, biblical doctrine. Um, sometimes uh, I prefer the expression cultural philosophy rooted in a, a biblical world and life view, because we are talking about uh, the totality of cultural life and how the gospel, the word of God, um, you know, applies to it. So that's the concern of the cultural philosopher or theologian is to think about God and his word as it relates to how we apply the authority of God's word in every in every aspect of cultural life. And then cultural apologetics is the defense of that Christian view uh, of life, uh, the Christian philosophy of life for 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 every area. That's how Cornelius Van Til would have defined apologetics: the defense or the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life. Yeah, the very purpose of this podcast is to help people see that all Scripture applies to all of life, uh, rather than bits and pieces of Scripture applying to bits and pieces of life. And sadly. Um, I don't know how well of a job we've all done in equipping people to see how expansive the Word of God is, as well as how important all of life is, that it's life is worthy to be addressed by the, the, the full uh, extent of Scripture, and that we've been given this wonderful gift by God to ex explore and have this opportunity to engage the world in in a way that shows him to be who he really is and then to help people live accordingly. And it, it, it blesses my heart to see how you're, de you're so dedicated to this. And uh, so um, culturally speaking, where are we at today? What's going on, Joe? Uh, can you help us? We're in a bit of a pickle. Yeah, well, <clears throat> uh, to your point really about the um, the 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 authority of scripture and 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 how we apply it culturally um 
there is an important difference between the Christian accepting the formal authority of the Bible, and certainly in evangelical circles, uh, we're good at talking about the inspiration, uh, the plenary inspiration, the, um, the the authority, even the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, define plenary inspiration. I think a lot of people don't know what that is. It's the it's the verbal. The, the words themselves are inspired uh, uh, by God, um, and this um, the, the the this this ability this uh, to defend or be concerned about the defense of that authority has been a concern of evangelicals. But in the last hundred years, um, what we've not been so good at doing, maybe 150 years, is talking about the material authority of Scripture. So not just the fact that it is formally authoritative, but actually in its application, it's authoritative. And I think probably in answer to your question where we're at culturally, what is somewhat bamboozling, so, so somewhat... Um, difficult to fully understand right now and is, is hard to to fully take in is the extent to which we evangelicals and reform people who have talked so much about the authority of the bible or the centrality of the gospel and being gospel centered and so on don't seem to find the gospel relevant or immediately applicable and the scripture immediately applicable to cultural crisis um, and um, the, the development of both authoritarianism and an increasingly totalitarian view of the state and its role in society. Um, even, of course, issues that we're dealing with now that will no doubt bear down upon us with some intensity over the next two to four years. Uh, bills C6, C10, C36, so that's the anti-conversion therapy bill, C6, and then 10 and 36 are two essentially censorship bills uh, these are going to start to really bite. Uh, and of course, we're in the grip even now in Ontario and in various other uh, provinces in Canada of draconian measures and restrictions, um, a kind of medical apartheid developing on uh, what services you can access or what aspects of life you can participate in um, if you've not had a government mandated medical treatment. So and the, the, I guess the disappointment, Alan, the thing that is um, discouraging, uh, often disheartening, is the lack of clarity in general. Uh, there are exceptions, but the lack of clarity in general from the Christian church around how the word of God and how the gospel speaks into all of this um, uh, in terms of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's as though we've truncated or reduced the gospel to believing uh, a handful of Christian doctrines about forgiveness, personal salvation, and Jesus coming back for us. And as long as you still believe those things between your ears, we're good. Uh, and uh, the the indefinite um, uh, lockdown of the church, restrictions on the church, um, suspension of the Lord's Supper, singing, um, uh, and then of course various other civil liberties. These don't these aren't gospel issues. So this sense of a, a radical truncation, certainly from what the reformers and what our evangelical forebears would have deemed gospel issues uh, and what is central to the application of the word of God. Yeah, but hasn't the government been uh, mandated by God to look after the, the public good? And then aren't we in the middle of a health crisis? And so shouldn't we be listening to the the experts and taking their guidance until somehow we're able to get through this thing yeah so well there's a lot there 
uh, and there's there's a lot that could be said in response. Um, maybe let's pick a few highlights. First of all, in order to be able to uh, critique or respond to the cultural situation, you need a platform to do it from. And the difficulty for, for most Christians right now, I would say the majority uh, right now, is that lacking a robust and distinctly Christian world and life view, our responses are arbitrary and ad hoc. So people think that right now an adequate response to everything that's going on is, well, we're loving our neighbor or we're obeying the government because the Bible says obeying the government. And that's it. There's, there's no, there's no um, understanding of what scripture is saying about human government. There's no definition of what loving our neighbor is in terms of the law of God, which is actually the source of defining. It's God's law, which defines love of neighbor, not my feelings. Um, and so this just this sense of arbitrariness and a total lack of systematic or coherent foundation for the response is, is fundamentally the problem. So uh, take, for example, um, you know, we're supposed to obey the government. Well, was that true of the the, the Germans, the, the German Christians and the Jews under the Nazis? Were, we, were they just supposed to obey the fascist regime? Um, what about the Christians in the Soviet Union? What about Christians today in the Islamic world who are meeting underground? Who, but, but, you know, Joe, people are saying this is not that. They have so much worse. So it's so much more terrible than what we're going through right now. You know, just, you know, be quiet and take the shot. Well, of course, that's an, just an expression of arbitrariness. Again, um, uh, uh, the, if the principle is at stake, and I would argue that the fundamental principle is one of s s uh, sphere sovereignty of the spheres that God has established in human society to be governed under the Lordship of Christ. It doesn't matter whether we think the infraction is great or small. And of course, in both the Soviet Union and, and Nazi Germany, the infractions began very, very small. And they grew in their scope and their extent. So um, we don't resist lies and tyranny and injustice only when we think those lies uh, and tyranny and injustice have reached a level that are personally so offensive to us that we should engage with them. Um, so the, the, the let's take the, the notion of government. Um, and Romans 13 has been thrown around a lot. But of course, the context of what Paul is saying there in Romans 13 is not dealt with. Here is an apostle who spends a great deal of his time in jail. Um, that's not a man who is obeying the government. Um, he, he, he uh, uh, in, in some sort of unqualified uh, an absolute sense, um, he appeals to his citizenship at one point when he's about to be flogged. So he actually appeals to his constitutional liberties. And in that, in that instance, actually uh, gets, gets out of the situation. Um, he appeals his case through the courts to Caesar. In fact, at one point, Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. Hence, Paul, on his you know, journey eventually to Rome. Um, here's a man who was let down out of a basket, out of a city to escape um, uh, persecution and accepted even a military escort away from uh, a city to avoid mobs. So um, the, 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 it's taking scripture as a whole and looking at what the Bible says as a whole, that is important. And what Paul clearly says in Romans 13 is that all government, all forms of human government, there are there is no authority, not actually just talking about civil government. He says there's no authority except from God. So God is the one who establishes all authority. Now, because he establishes them, they're accountable to him.
So Paul goes on then to say, to describe the state, the civil authority, as God's servant, his minister, literally his deacon, uh, his slave. Um, and it's then he goes on to prescribe what the role of God's deacon is uh, in the civil government, which is to punish evil and reward righteousness, to be God's avenger. Uh, so obviously, um, we don't um, we can't uh, be selective about which laws of God we're going to obey. So if the state begins to forbid what God commands or it commands what God forbids, then disobedience to the state becomes uh, a Christian duty. That is actually almost a verbatim quote from the quiet Anglican, English Anglican, John Stott, um, not a sort of fire-breathing reformer from the 16th century. Uh, and that has been the Christian understanding, that we obey for the sake of conscience. God has established authority, various spheres of authority. We can point to three prominent ones in the Bible, the family, the church and the state. He's given them a specific jurisdiction and role and responsibility. The state is to be a minister of justice to punish evil and reward the good. Um, and so the state is a in the modern world is a public legal order and it's responsible for justice in the public legal order. Where do we read anywhere in the Bible or discern from Christian history that the state has some has the sole authority or jurisdiction to govern public health. What is health? Uh, what does it even mean, health, wholeness? Um, what gives the state a unilateral, absolute jurisdiction to govern my health uh, or to govern my neighbor's health? This is a nonsense um, that is the, 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 the modern state in its totalitarian posture. And by the way, for the listeners, totalitarianism um, means the swallowing or the absorbing of other spheres of life or institutions by one institution, in this case, the state. So when the state absorbs in a parts-to-whole relationship the other spheres of life and treats other spheres of life as though they are lesser parts of a greater whole, that's totalitarianism. And uh, tragically, um, that's what we're seeing, and, we're, and it's been remarkable to see uh, Christians agreeing with the totalitarian posture of the state. A state which is subject to the lordship of Jesus Christ is meant to serve Christ. And when the state begins to move against the church and lock the church down indefinitely and uh, forbid, the, forbid the sacraments, uh, forbid what God commands, singing, greeting one another, laying hands on the sick, ordaining people into ministry and office and eldership, ministering to the poor. These are commands. These aren't requests. The, the gathering together weekly uh, to not give up the habit of gathering together. When the state moves against the church and says, we assume a total control over the church, um, then we're in the territory where uh, the state is commanding, what, is forbidding what God commands and commanding what God forbids. And at that point, we have a duty to to resist. And this is something actually, Alan, that a Scottish judge in the Scottish High Court uh, this year recognised, and the the, um, the the barrister in the case uh, appealed to the, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, his total authority in the Christian view over the state, told the judge that the, the, the state was requiring Christians to choose between obedience to God and obedience to the state, 
and the judge found in favor of the church, referred them back to the referred the gut the state back to the 17th century and ordered the government to open the church immediately. Uh, why can a Scottish that's, that's, judge, this is not Canada? <laughs> right, Pity. The U.S. Supreme Court as well, um, or at least U.S. And, and the various cases that have come before the, the in the U.S. jurisdictions. Look at even John MacArthur's jurisdiction there in California. The state's been ordered to pay damages to the church. Why is it that um, in these other jurisdictions, Christians, um, even secular judges can see this and Christians in the church in Canada, for the most part, either can't see it or don't want to see it? Now, you have some personal experience with this. This is not just theoretical uh, stuff for you. Uh, could you share a little bit about how you have faced this encroaching totalitarianism and how you've taken a stand and how that's worked out? I know we don't have a lot of time left, but as best you can. Sure. Well, I think the, the first thing that um, I got involved with uh, was to um, quite a while back now, um, was to, in fact, when this when this situation first broke, Alan, I wrote uh, an article uh, called When the Cure is Worse Than the Disease. That was in March 2020. Um, and that uh, people can go and refer to that article on the Ezra website if they want ezrainstitute.ca. Um, and um, I wrote another article shortly thereafter under a pseudonym for another organization in America. Um, and um, I, I began by just trying to articulate for Christians initially a, a biblical non-reductionist view of reality, that human beings are not just biological organisms, that human health cannot be reduced to the avoidance of viral material. Uh, and that, that well-being, salvation, salve, wholeness in Christian understanding is a much broader and bigger concept than that. And warning that these, these measures borrowed from China, communist China, by the Western states were, were going to prove a cure much more damaging ultimately than the disease itself. Um, interestingly enough, over 100 years ago, Abraham Kuyper himself anticipated um, the tyranny of um, vaccine certificates uh, with regard to, I think it was at the time, smallpox, if memory serves me correctly. And he wrote about it and said that in these vaccine passports or certificates hides a tyranny and a danger as great as the disease itself. So I started there by trying to uh, give people a broader, bigger perspective on the issue of health, disease, wholeness, um, and what the uh, the uh, and not having a reductionist view of creation in the human person. Um, and then in terms of direct sort of um, engagement, I drafted something with a colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Aaron Rock, another pastor, um, called Reopen Ontario Churches. Uh, and um, we we um, wrote, a, I think, quite a, um, a robust letter to the Ontario government, asked them to engage us in dialogue about the issue. And we got um, hundreds of church signatories to that. And I think the, the, the weight of that, along with one or two that were working with us on the inside there, uh, that actually um, enabled us to have an audience with the Ontario government. Um, and um, we essentially insisted in that meeting that they reopen the church. 
and we asked for a minimum of 50% and we got 30. So we shot for the moon and, and got a bit less. And that actually led to that, 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 that discussion as memory serves was on the Friday and on the Monday, uh, Doug Ford opened the churches. Um, so a, was, a question because of what you said about totalitarianism and jurisdiction, um, I might be able to guess, but you said you knew shot for the moon with 50% attendance. Why don't you go for 100%? Well, that was a question that was asked for us at the time. And, and uh, um, I think in that particular moment, given the circumstances, there was a sense among uh, the group of us that were the small group of us that were meeting with um, the government on that issue, the provincial government, that um, a pragmatic approach that showed that recognized that we actually um you know do we do care about people we're not trying to be cavalier in hindsight we might have shot for 100 percent uh you know i think there were so many moving parts and, and even then we couldn't really anticipate the way that this you know two weeks to flatten the curve is becoming two years to flatten our freedoms um but um uh that's where we started then um when it became clear that that wasn't going to last and um, uh, we moved into a um, uh, out of a, a summer and then into a fall in which lockdowns were returning. Um, I drafted something called the Niagara Declaration, which again was a, a sort of public um, campaign, if you will, in which I articulate in that declaration both a scriptural view of government um, and uh, a, a view of the Canadian constitution as rooted in um, a, a, a tradition of civil liberty under God. And so the declaration itself moves through a number of points. And again, we um, sought signatories for that. Um, I can't remember the exact number now. It was maybe 300 or so um, church signatories to the Niagara Declaration. And we sought to use it as a rallying point then for this East, this Easter just gone where we uh, tried to, to have a campaign to open the churches on Good Friday, Easter Sunday. And it was interesting to see that what happened was with the Reopen Ontario churches, we had this kind of support and, and, and um, churches with us. Niagara Declaration, as we started to articulate more robustly the Lordship of Christ over all of life, it sort of the support wanes somewhat. By the time we get to the Reopen the churches for the Easter weekend, I think there may have been 67 churches across the country that that, uh, that in within the evangelical reform world that joined us and there are i think 700 churches or thereabouts in my region of niagara alone so um, what what was what was uh taking the wind out of their sails what do you th what was that fundamentally i think intimidation um fear um and intimidated uh, being intimidated by the government yes or f other other people or mainly the government Probably a mixture of both um, pe pe people's own sense of being either afraid, you know, genuine fear of um, of disease uh, and or uh, what I should say, combined with fear of the consequences. I mean, as you know, we've seen some pastors in Canada actually go to prison, um, two in particular, as well as um, uh, very, very steep hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines. Um, levied against uh, pastors that were resistant, and I think that as the um, as the threats or intimidation grew, and as as maybe both fear in our congregations, but also threats and intimidation towards leaders grew, uh, the cost 
it's in a certain sense it's it's not all that costly to sign the the letter um it's a bit more costly to sign a very clear declaration that promises resistance and action if the government doesn't uh listen and then when it comes to the actual action then of course it's um uh then you know that's where the rubber really uh, meets the road and so i think that that you know in both intimidation and fear largely account for that the interesting thing is alan that the one institution in this country the one institution in fact in the west that has been and would have been capable of ending this ending the tyranny um bringing to an end uh draconian lockdowns and medical apartheid and so forth is the church if the church had stood up we were told this by business leaders business people in toronto the you're the only institution that can stop this and that's true it, the church of jesus christ was the only organized institution as a sphere of authority in society capable of actually saying no um and so how did you so how did did you say no yes so locally um we did and um without sort of going into all of the details of how we did that uh, obviously we stood by the declaration we stood by the the letter that had been written and um we remained um we did remain open for months during uh lockdown and um largely undetected just so people know so um i can say the city where you're talking about right yes. yeah so 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 first of all our province of ontario was one of the the most locked down restricted regions on the planet especially in north america and then toronto of all cities was was most locked down like restaurants weren't open uh, here in ottawa where, where where i live we were open we were closed and then toronto was just closed for months and months and months and churches were also suffering under the same kind of very heavy restrictions so that's the climate uh in which you took a stand right yes yeah and uh to some degree in 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 the city we we hid in plain sight um we we got creative with uh our the moving our service times um and uh we we added a service um we closed our car park uh, we used multiple entrances um we did a variety of things that um were were designed to try and enable us to to um well basically avoid detection and avoid being snitched on and because we have a very uh, faithful congregation and good good people um we weren't dealing with um uh, a lot of churches have said that have been resistant have seen betrayal on the inside and have actually been sort of betrayed by their by members of their own congregations uh that that didn't happen for us so for 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 many months we were able to obey the lord and um and, and be faithful uh and uh, be creative now there came a point of course where we had to look at underground strategies that didn't involve our you know our normal location for meeting um as uh, as things got increasingly heated up um and um uh and when detection finally happened uh we had to get uh, we had to get creative there uh, but it that was only for a few weeks because um by the time that came around we were we were just a few weeks away from things opening up a bit more again so 
um, but we did we did invari- investigate various underground lo- uh, locations. It's a bit more of a challenge um, in 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 the city than perhaps in in some of the settings that I've had the privilege of visiting or speaking at um, in sort of underground settings. Uh, uh, in greenhouses and barns and so forth in in in, in farmers' fields, um, but uh, it wasn't because we were trying to um, uh, put put it stick it in the eye of anybody. We were simply trying to shepherd the flock of God, to be faithful shepherds, uh, not to flee when the wolf comes, um, to uh, to obey the Lord in the administration of the sacraments and in the preaching of His Word and and ministry to the sick. Um, and to care for our people who were, you know, losing jobs and um, facing financial hardship and uh, it, struggling with isolation and loneliness and all of these different things. And uh, Alan, you know, in, let's take England, for example. The, the, the government in England, just the threat of the possibility of legal action by the church meant that there was no lockdown in 2021 of the churches in England. Now, many uh, churches chose to shut anyway uh, because of the problem of fear and, uh, um, and you know, the sort of endless indoctrination in the media. Um, but the government didn't do it. Um, yeah, that's something I'm not aware of. I was aware that people were staying home, but I didn't know that there wasn't a government mandate. No, no. Uh, they they uh, they knew that there was the potential for um, uh, litigation, and there were former prime ministers in the house, Theresa May, who openly spoke against any such move as a harb a very dangerous harbinger. Um, and so, you know, in part, we also reflected as a, as as a church leaders on on the fact that look, in in other Western jurisdictions that are harder hit than we are in terms of actual virus fallout. Um, they're not shut down. Um, so, you know, the, 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 this, the, the sort of panacea of love of neighbor that was being bandied around and obey the government just didn't wash with us. We knew that we had an obligation to care for the people. And that's resulted in, in tremendous church growth. And, and during this, this period, when you're open, when other churches are closed, because they were simply following the rules, um, did you have uh, engagement with the authorities? During the period when we were when we were meeting uh, quietly uh, um, under the radar, uh, and, it's, and, and as you were saying, I, I've been to, I've been to your congregation. You are not a little country church at the edge of town. You are you're smack in the middle of a of a bustling city. It's, there's residential, but there's you know lots of stores, and it's a busy it's busy. Well, after our you know the the, the efforts I had with other pastors to uh, leaders to discuss directly with the government and put opposition to them when when it was becoming clear that they were just going to override and ignore um we did not have i did not have uh further direct uh engagement um we as, as i mentioned earlier at the sort of very end of uh of, our, of that period of of remarkable protection from the lord really uh, we did have um, a brief engagement with the authorities, um, uh, with the with the police. But um, I think that um, it wasn't. It's interesting that it wasn't uh, an entire secret that we were meeting in the community because taxi drivers, Uber drivers, were dropping people off 
at the church who'd simply got into a cab and said, you know, if there's a church open in Toronto, and they said, oh, yeah, um, and cabbies, were, you know, Uber drivers were driving them there. So I don't think it was a brilliantly kept secret. And I think for the most part, uh, the authorities were, uh, for whatever reason, because we were observed a few times by the police, were ignoring us. Um, and uh, uh, we just, you know, we just thank, we, we thank the Lord for that. And as you said earlier, you weren't trying to stick in the eye of anyone. You were trying to talk to the government best you could. You're trying to serve your people as best you could, serve God the best you could, do it as quietly as possible without trying to make a statement. The, the statement was being made, but but you certainly weren't putting any gas on the on the fire. And I I love the I love the about the cabbies and the Uber drivers knowing. Like they knew where to take the people because you were just being faithful to what God had called you to do. Um, we're going to have to wrap it up. If people want to get in touch with you in any way, what's the best way to do that? So uh, people can find out about and engage with the ministry of the Ezra Institute at our website, ezrainstitute.ca. And uh, you can contact us through our, our, our Facebook um, and um, through contact information on the website. Do you, and, do you want to say briefly what the Ezra Institute is? Yes, I don't think we mentioned yes. that. Yeah, so the Ezra Institute is a is a, a Christian um, world and life view uh, think tank and uh, training seminar. So we uh, we we do thinking, writing, speaking, um, applying the the fullness of the Christian view of reality to every aspect of life, and we do um, uh, intensive in person training opportunities residentially for people to come for. A few days or up to two weeks, uh, different programs that we offer for people to learn scriptural world and life view and 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 a Christian philosophy. People can also um, follow me on on Twitter at Dr. Joe Boot. Very good. Well, thank you, Joe, so much for spending this time with me. I, I think you shed some light on things and and hopefully uh, encourage hope encourage a lot of people. So thanks so much. My privilege, Alan. Thanks for having me. So again, if you want to be in touch with Dr. Joe Boot, you can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Joe Boot, as well as check out the Ezra Institute website at ezrainstitute.ca. Don't forget it's .ca at the end. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. Also leave comments uh, down below and uh, don't forget to subscribe whether it's to my YouTube channel or however you're listening to this podcast. Until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. Mm-hmm.